All right. Just begin it with a big, good old sniff into the camera. That's what I like to hear. (laughs) This is Crackle Comics 49. I'm Mike. I'm Dan. Uh, Gentlemen, how how are we this week before we talk about comics? This might be our shortest show ever. I'm feeling feeling just peachy today. Is there a reference for why? I'll let you think about it. I... I can. There's like three things, and none of them I want to mention. Fair enough. Sticking in. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> I'll I'll take that as a segue as another book that sticks in, which is Amazing Spider-Man. Yes. So our first issue to kick off this amazing show is Amazing Spider-Man number fifty-seven, written by Nick Spencer, art by Mark Bagley. Um, our first I- issue, or uh, I can't talk, our issue opens to narration from Kindred as he is transported away to Ravencroft. Um, MJ and Pete meet up in the cemetery as the other spider people kind of just head off and go their separate ways. Um, back in present day, Norman and Peter talk at Ravencroft as Norman basically begs Pete to talk to Kindred. And Pete's just like, no, I don't want to talk to him. And basically punches him out, beating the crap out of Norman. So. That's kind of how that whole thing ends there. Um, As Pete leaves, we see Kindred smiling in his jail cell. So this shit ain't over yet. So we'll see how what happens next. Um, Carly Cooper is examining the Sin Eater's bodies that have been killed. That he has killed, sorry. When she notices that one of them died. Or one of them is actually still alive and did not show up on the records. And we can see Kindred's tentacles kind of crawling through there. So she calls MJ. MJ doesn't pick up because it's two thirty-eight in the morning. MJ, I guess, isn't you know isn't doesn't stay up late. I guess so. Goes to voicemail. Pete shows up at the very end to kind of go in bed with MJ, and as he's about to head off to sleep, MJ whispers, uh, "This isn't over yet, right?" And he's like, "Yep." So we'll see. Like like we said, uh, not a lot of happens here aside from the whole thing with Norman. But um, yeah, I don't know. What do you get? What do you think of this? Well, I I do have a correction for you. The bodies Carly Cooper's looking at are not from Sin Eater. They're the ones that Kindred stole. So it's like George Stacy, Uncle Ben. It's all those bodies he dug up. Oh, whoops, my bad. And then there's like one not accounted for. So oh, all right. What what dead person's back or did they not account for is the thing. Um, so. And then the other part of this is like they shortened the order of the spider to just the order. I was like, all right, whatever. Uh, Like 56 and 57 could have just been combined for one issue and been fine. I like Pete lashing out at Norman thematically because it's like, all right, he's still under the influence, I guess, somehow. Um. They, they though this was the big kindred story, and I don't, I still don't know if it's stuck, it's landing, you know, like I'm still deliberating on it. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm liking nice Norman, nice, Nor- like, you know, sins cleansed Norman is going to be interesting. Cause it looks like that is sticking, but if it, like, at least for this status quo for now, but I, I, there was also something like going on with the coloring in this issue. Like the scenes where Spider-Man showed up, it like it, the coloring was off. And I looked this is still the same crew that did the last issue which is weird. 
there there's three inkers on this book and then i think two colorists which i i don't know what was going on with the colors on spider-man's costume it was like more muted it was like almost orange like flat orange i don't know what it was going on but yeah i was like this is fine like but like let's speed it up let's i know mr negative i think is like the next one or something let's let's get back to like the more mini stories that spencer was doing and may i i don't want to say get right back on track but also like yes that's kind of what i mean so i don't know also i let's finally get patrick gleason on the book proper instead of just doing covers because you know he was announced as the new artist and they think he's still done like only like three to five issues and none of those have been in i believe sequence i think it's like one and then he's gone for three months how long ago how long ago was he was he announced the uh, uh the artist before otley left so that's you know last quarter twenty nine twenty twenty. So, yeah, you know, and it's been Mark Bagley for most of this. So that's you know, that's Amazing Spider Man. All right. Well, actually, I kind of want to kind of ask you guys about some Spider Man just to extend it, even though I'm not reading the book. Well, I'm not reading this. We have to. Well, I'm kind of curious. So, like. You know, Kindred, I'm pretty sure it wasn't Kindred set up like in issue one or, or the free comic day. Like Kindred was teased in the beginning of the run. I'm pretty certain. Correct. So we basically went, you know, more or less 50 issues, call it 50 issues, to finally get to the reveal of Kindred. It's a big reveal. They have this little arc and I read parts of it and I kind of feel like like I don't know. Does it feel like it? And does it feel like it was worth it? Fifty issues building up the reveal, and then I felt like the climax here was kind of underwhelming. He kind of just gets completely bodied by his dad and and Kingpin, kind of adjacently. I feel like uh, it's it like it's kind of overstated. It's welcome. Like we're having all this stuff drag out afterwards. Like. Okay, we have this reveal now. Let's just get on to the next whatever next step is for this um, run. Or my thing is like I liked Last Remains, but the payoff is I'm still deliberating, and clearly the payoff isn't done yet. Um, I would say though, like Kindred was not in every issue; he'd show up every now and then, and that was like the strength of Spencer's run. I thought he was still doing his other stories. Eventually, yeah, we're gonna it... so, and then yeah, we did it... and, like. I like the story. It's the end of it where I'm like, I'm left going, oh, that's it. But also, like, I know we know that that's not the end. So, but does that make it better or worse? The fact that, yeah, I don't know yet. I guess I'd have to wait like part two of Spidey versus Kindred. I think it's, I mean, yeah, it wasn't always in the foreground, but you know, building up that the subplot, you know, weaving it through the issues, like. If this was, even if it's just the first climax, feels like it was not worth waiting for. Um, well, and then if there's more to come, I, like, I feel like that's worse. Looking at looking at Spencer's big stories, I'd say Hunted is better than Last Remains, but Last Remains is better than Sins Rising. Well, I mean, Sins Rising was kind of just like a... It was, but yeah, it was kind of a giant lead-in, so... And then you have the two-issue epilogue here, and then more to come, so I don't know. I'm not talk, reading this book, so talk about your book, no one likes. Yeah, this is not a great spotlight either. Uh, the Chris Claremont anniversary special. 
Uh, it's Claremont, and it's a range of artists. It mo mostly it includes uh, Sienkiewicz and uh, and Brett Booth. Those are the two that really their names stand out. The other, there's two other artists, I believe. Uh, they're not super big artists. So we start with the head fuck Danny Moonstar sequence. She's being like recalled by Hella to do some Valkyrie stuff and Dark Phoenix there. I don't really even know what that's supposed to mean. You know, like, is this, is this in the present? Is that Gene? Is that the Phoenix? Is, I don't know, the, you know, like Claremont probably doesn't give a shit about continuity. Um, then there's, Danny comes across this like multiverse Fantastic Four entanglement where there's like three different versions of the Fantastic Four fighting each other. But it's really just like three versions of of Sue protecting all together, protecting themselves against three versions of like their partners attacking them. So we have basically like classic Reed and classic Sue. We have a version of Sue that where Reed and, and her family died. So then she hooked up with Namor and we have a version of Sue where Reed gets trapped in Dr. Doom's armor. So it's kind of like she's with Doom, even though it's not technically Doom. And uh, it's really weird. And the like big punchline is that Reed Richards is ticklish. And that's how like the Sues win. And Danny like interferes and it's, it's all Shadow King nonsense. So she figures that out. And then the next sequence, we have Rogue fighting Binary, you know, classic, you know, Rogue versus Carol Danvers fight. But Rogue has like a shadow, she's, you know, she's Shadow King stuff again. And then for a quick moment, Binary like slips into like looking like Captain, Mar like modern Captain Marvel. And then there's a scene from the Jim Lee era where Gambit is helping DH Storm. And also like Danny Moonstar doesn't recognize gambit she's like oh that's a handsome dude this whole thing made my head hurt it's basically ex exactly you know it's basically a, a direct follow-up or spiritual you know next chapter of to the uh, new mutants one shot from a year or two ago that claremont did you know i guess at the time was loosely supposed to be tied into the movie but obviously <laughs> the movie came and went and then came and then no one cared. Um, and I have basically the same reaction. This made my head hurt. The title is kind of misleading. I'm not sure what I expected, but maybe more of a diverse lineup of Claremont's, you know, actual career rather than this like mind trip dating Moonstar story. Like, you know, it would be nice to see Iron Fist or Spider-Man, some of his other major runs, you know, a little bit different use of Carol Danvers. Honestly, for Chris Claremont anniversary special at this juncture would probably be better off just using other creators, doing stories and tribute to him and the characters he used and the stories he wrote rather than letting him do this nonsense. Um, so, <laughs> so it's a uh, sad to see. Has Chris Claremont hit the, the Neil Adams tenure of his career where everything he does is just kind of in its own headspace and it's insane and stupid um i think there's most like there's there's two parts to that i think as far as you know kind of doing things off in his corner like similar to how neil just kind of does whatever the hell he wants and kind of connects his things with batman and dead man claremont has been doing that for like 
almost like 15 years, you know, he had like X-Men forever right. where, you know, Marvel to, I mean, to this day, Marvel has him on salary, like yeah. not even, I don't know if he has page rate on top of that when he actually does do things, but like they pay him. And back in the day, the idea was they're paying him so that no one else can hire him. Like, like, right. D, you know, DC can't grab him for justice league, which they did for his, you know, for one arc way back. And it was not a good arc, but whatever. Um, but like, you know, you can't really make that excuse now. Maybe it's become like a legacy thing similar to how, you know, they were paying Stan Lee, even though that was related to lawsuits. But I don't know. I don't understand why. I don't understand their relationship with him and why it exists. But back in the day, the, part of the deal, to my knowledge, was that he had to write like a certain number of pages or maybe a certain number of issues per month. But at that point, they were like, we don't want you on the main X-Men books because, you know, they had stopped Extreme X-Men and things like that. So, like, just write like a fake separate continuity thing of like, what if you never got, what if we never fired you from X-Men? Well, technically you quit, but whatever. Um, So that's what X-Men forever is. And it was like a whole ongoing series. And there's like, there's like 40 issues of X-Men forever across like two, two volumes and stuff. And it's all nonsense. And there are a couple other examples of that. Like, you know, he did like the, uh, I don't know if, I, I, I guess he, I think it's MC2. He did like the MC2 X-Men stuff. That's the Spider-Girl continuity. Again, alternate continuity connected to his other stuff tangentially. Um, and there's other examples of that. Like he did, he did Exiles um, just off his rocker and shit like oh, that. He ruined Exiles. Yeah. This first hand ago. Um, I, I feel like I am being too harsh. Like when he pops in for his little stories and anthologies, they're good. Like, that X-Men Black story he did for Magneto, that was good. Like, yeah. probably scatterbrained and bad. And that's it, what basically said it was. Yeah, I think if I think if there's a little bit more of a leash to it, I think he's not washed. Like, and and at this point, this is like eight years ago almost, or or like five years ago. But his nightcrawler his nightcrawler run around like the Marvel Now era, like halfway through Marvel Now. I think that was actually really solid. Um, and they basically haven't, unless I'm really blanking on something, they haven't let him uh, really do something substantial since that Nightcrawler book. So I guess it depends on, you know, what assignment they give him and also what he approaches with an assignment. I think I think if, if, if Claremont and Editorial really, you know, work together properly, I think he can still deliver, like, good stuff but when they just kind of let him do his own thing in these like one shots like every 18 months they're just going to be a mess yeah dan do you read this uh yeah um yeah this is really all over the place i mean when you really think about it when you break it down like there are pieces of this that i like like um like i'm actually reading the demon bear epic collection right now from new mutants so like Susan Thinkovich art and you know seeing Danny Moonstar like that stuff really like got me intrigued and now it's just uh, yeah this is just really all over the place and it just goes to show you going from like reading that stuff which is like the prime of Claremont's like you know prowess I guess within the Marvel universe to to now it's just yeah it's just not the same so yeah, yeah. and 
I, I gotta say the cover of this, I'm I just something about it really is not vibing with me. I mean, even just being like Chris Claremont's name, the word art with his name up on the top. I mean, it just looked really lazy and I don't know. I know it's not everything to an issue, but well, the bad. I, I was in Vince's camp here when I saw this because I didn't read this. I, I saw it and I was like, oh, it's a bunch of people doing a tribute. Um, oh, no, it's just him writing. The minute I Vince was like, no, it's him writing, I was like, oh, cool, I'm not reading this because that's exactly what I thought it was. It looks like it was. So we have nothing else to say. I'll talk about Immortal Hulk. So Immortal Hulk number 42 Al Ewing, and then there's a bunch of artists on this. Alex Linus is on the leader. Adam Gorham is on Gamma Flight. Rachel Stott is on the Jackie McGee sequence, and then Joe Bennett does the UFO sequence at the end. Joe Bennett, Joe Bennett only does like three pages, if that, in this. But yeah, Ewing's got like four different running scenes running through this full issue with different artists. That's not unlike what we've seen before with different artists coming in when when the setting calls for it, but this is definitely the most we've seen in like one issue. Uh, Gamma flight, Gamma flight bails on Henry Peter, uh, Jairich when he becomes his usual self again, cause he's, he's a dick and he's threatening jail time for like absorbing man for bailing. And then uh Sasquatch is like, all right, let's go, let's go help Hulk. And they, you know, they'll pull together their own thing. So that makes uh Jairich pulling the UFOs to go track down the Hulk. And then uh, Jackie, Jackie McGee quits her paper, but is tracked down by uh, Dr. McGowan, and uh, who's trying to put a team of Gamma mutates together to help her save the Hulk. And it's revealed here that in that explosion that the Hulk had a few issues back has transformed her. Uh, so she's a Gamma mutate now, and she's got like Gamma vision going on with her eyes or something. Well, I'm assuming that'll, you know, obviously gets addressed later. And then the last the leader learns that he has got to combine all the forces of Bruce's like dark mindset to get himself a leg up. So he basically uh, looks to the one below all. So now the leader, Brian Banner, and the one below all all inhabit like the same mind space. So essentially, that's Hulk's three big three biggest villains all in one body. So that's that's threatening. Uh, still good stuff. And uh, like usual, yeah. Like and then also like I liked all the guest artists. This is good. Ha ha. So this is the new image title by W. Maxwell Prince of Ice Cream Man fame. And this issue is by artist Vanessa Del Rey. Um, deceptively, I mean, obviously it's the same writer, so it's not like a huge surprise, but also kind of the premise. It, it's, you know, you're, you're going into this expecting similar vibes to Ice Cream Man, and it pretty much hits that note. It's, but it's literally a book about a clown or about clowns, I should say. So in this issue, we have a character, our main character is named Bart. He's this kind of blue collar esque worker. He gigs at an amusement park or he did because it's closing down due to the economy, et cetera. And as he's laid off, his fellow clown best friend mugs him in the parking lot with a crowbar, but good thing he was hiding a check in his sock. So as he's going to go cash it at the bank, his luck gets even worse as he's caught in the middle of a bank heist. And I don't really like even from even right off the bat, like there's clearly something slightly off about him. But I didn't entirely understand like why he doesn't cooperate with the bank heists. Um, 
like you know everyone gets on the ground and everything like that and he's just standing there like stays in line as if he can just i don't know it's kind of weird that that part's not explained it's not like it matters but because he's not cooperating one of these uh robbers just shoots him right in the forehead but somehow the bullet goes right through him cleanly and or at least cleanly is the explanation given by the doctor and then he kind of has this like bizarre like anti-hero vigilante moment where he has his endless handkerchief which is kind of his signature gimmick as a clown and he takes the robbers out and yes as i said he's clearly messed up in the head possibly more so or particularly so due to getting shot in the brain uh when he shows back up home it seems that he sees his family as balloons and i don't know if that's temporary or permanent or what and there is a little reference here to it particularly um the movie i don't know if well i don't know there's a there's like a storm drain and one of those little boat like paper boats um i thought this was executed very well but i'm not really sure how to take it it's impossible not to consider especially this issue like there's totally the joker vibes the the movie joker this series is an anthology it's going to be six issues and each issue has a different artist um i thought vanessa del rey did a good job here uh her art fit the tone of the story pretty well i'm definitely sticking with the series the next issue is drawn by zoe thorogood who i'm not sure has done any mainstream comic works she's just like literally just released what i believe is her debut graphic novel so interested to see her art uh i haven't read that graphic novel or anything i just am kind of vaguely familiar with her through social media and this is a cool book if you don't like clowns you probably won't like this yeah yeah first especially with that cover it's a very menacing first issue cover uh yeah the joker vibes are there but like this is definitely w actual prince going let's do some black dark comedy here in like a very strange way and that's exactly what the book was and i loved it kind of for that reason that there is something hilarious about a clown standing neck in the middle of a bank robbery getting shot in the head and then being fine because the bullet's a small enough caliber that it doesn't pierce his brain in any way and goes right through and beats them with an endless handkerchief i'd liked how dirty the art was like the world they lived in that was like very grimy and dirty particularly in the you know the amusement park that was all like great stuff um but like yeah you mentioned that this guy's a little off kilter like he's at the breakfast table with his family in full like full clown regalia it's it's pretty great so, well he ex- he explains that that's his work clothes. Yeah. yeah it's his work clothes like if but he was normally, far- you know it, i mean i i'll say this right now i enjoy this than any amount of that joker movie so and i wish this you know would have taken some tips for that film uh because probably could have made it better but like yeah this i i enjoyed this because it's just so weird and it's like comedy but also with like a misc of horror that only it seems w maxwell prince can do uh dan you haven't read uh ice cream man so you wouldn't really know that feeling here so but yeah, I, I enjoyed this. I'll, I mean, I'll read the next, you know, five issues of it. Yeah, I mean, same here. I'm definitely on board for the next issue. Um, 
Yeah, the sequence the sequence that stands out to me is definitely the one where the bullet's traveling through his head. He feels different like layers of his brain and just like the way that's illustrated, that's like really perfect. Um yeah, this is definitely like a good mix of some slight like some very disturbing things, but also some very like lighthearted things at times. So yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. like oddly hopeful, which is weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. no, it totally works. And uh Hey, didn't you make Homesick Pilots a pick of the week? Uh, did I? I think you did. I believe okay. it was your number one was a pick of the week for you. So it's been like two years since I read a Homesick Pilots. Um, it came um, out like three weeks ago. Did it? Okay, wow. I guess to, to be fair, a lot has happened and since the time we've been off. You got that right. Um, so yeah, our next issue is Homesick Pilots number two. Written by Dan Waters with art by Casper Weingard. Uh, we open to a flashback where Amy uh, meets her bandmates and they make fun of her like in the Ramones, uh, who apparently suck to all of her um, bandmates. Um, we also see that she redid their name of the band that was originally supposed to be the Orphan Club. So again, you know, kind of changing that up, gives a little more background on that. It's kind of cool. Back in the present time, which is actually 1994, uh, June 3rd, 1994, my older sister's first birthday, um, the band members are still searching for Amy in the haunted house and decide to leave and hopefully enlist the help of some cops without having them kind of curious about other things that these kids are doing, right? Uh, So meanwhile, Amy's ghost version goes after this horseshoe that has belonged to the house where she was possessed in. And it, it kind of tracks her to like this place where this woman and this man, this man are about to like, I guess, have sex or something. Um, the woman is holding on to the uh, horseshoe and she's like, no, you can't take this horseshoe. It's mine. It's giving me luck. And we kind of see like the ways it g- has given her luck. Um, one of them being um, allowing her to survive a deadly car crash. So this woman then turns into a giant horseshoe and like flies out a window and runs up to the rooftop. I think they and then the woman just gives up, gives the horseshoe to Amy and then just tosses herself off the rooftop rooftop and kills herself, assumingly. Um and then Amy basically goes back to the house, gives the hor- places the horseshoe back in the house and starts talking to the house and we get like this really weird, like very strange like man whose face is the horseshoe and like all you see is like a mouth at the bottom. And they like she kind of thinks that someone else is in the house and the house is just like, no, there's no one else in the house. Don't worry about it. And I believe then we cut to like one of her bandmates being stuck in the house still or that the other guy, I guess, from the other band. I can't really remember. Like I said, it's felt like it's been a while. But yeah, this this uh, still kind of continues that mix of, you know, I don't know. It's. It's a little bit of horror, a little bit of action, superpower type of stuff. Uh, I'll give it a third issue. We'll see. I'm still intrigued. I kind of want to see what's going on with all this. I I like this more than issue one. I was on the fence after issue one. And I came back, and I'm now more on the more on the fence of reading it more. That doesn't make sense. I I can't talk. But uh, no, I enjoyed this more than issue one. Definitely. Uh, I like the. I like that all of the the objects have their own like ghost persona. 
Um, so like the magnet guy, like when he's in the house, like he looks real creepy. So I like that. I am still critical of the amount of pages that are just like black background with just text boxes on them. I, I was critical of that in the first issue. Um, I'm wondering if there's a better way to do those transitions from that because it's, it, I mean, there's like five pages here. Um, and I think it's a 33 page book. So, you know, something, I mean, definitely a way to, to skirt, skirt it for the artist. So, uh, but overall, no, I like it. I like the different designs here. Uh, the color was the one big thing for me that um, that is really striking throughout the issue is the use of color to highlight the different, you know, scenes. And there isn't listed a colorist on the book, so I'm assuming it's Casper Wingard. Uh, but no, I, I'm enjoying this, and uh, I think it's still good. I, Vince, I can't remember if you read this or not. Yeah, I read it. Um, it's it's good. I don't have that much to say. There's There's a weird moment. Dan mentioned how she kind of comes up with the band's new name. Um, there's, they're like, oh, we're looking for a bandmate because everyone in her high school listens to surf music. And it's like, this is like, and I'm not dissing surf rock. I love surf rock, but this is supposed to be like early. Slack. This is like 1993 California. It's like, I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna have a huge fan base of surf rock anywhere, like I guess that's it. But also, no, <laughs> like you're not gonna say like, oh, all our all our high school is into surf rock. Um, but I don't know, that doesn't matter remotely. Uh, and then like the the suicide moment kind of caught me off guard. Um, I don't know what I was expecting. I mean, obviously, it's not like this is a superhero book or anything like that, where like we're expecting her to stop that. But it's just like, oh, this, you know, there was just like a woman jumping off a, a roof in this book. And like the main character, you know, theoretically could have, you know, done a little bit more to try and prevent it. But it just kind of happened. And it also is like, I mean, she references back to it, like, a, you know, on the next page, but or, or a little bit later. But it's also like, kind of quickly like moved off it's like on to the next ghost mission thing yeah um but the books you know writing and the the premise and, and the artwork really really good yeah and it looks like what she's got to track down the other items there's like what five or six more left that'll be probably you know the wrap up the series and we'll be without that when she gets you know horror crux number six or whatever that she needs to find Oh, and this is our uh, this week is probably our Dan Waters peak for the podcast because we have another Dan Waters yeah. book later on. Yeah, um, I did a Future State, uh, the Superman book. Yeah, and I think uh, I think he's one of those promising writers. He did Coffin Bound, which I talked about way back, even though I didn't stick with it. Um, you know, he's kind of adjacent. He's in. He's in this kind of like writing collective of UK writers, which also includes Ram V. Um, they're called, I think they're called White Noise. And so I think slowly we're going to see some of these guys getting more and more bigger books uh, at Marvel and DC. Uh, it seems, I mean, definitely we, we know it's coming for Ram V because he still has Catwoman. And then obviously he's taking over Swamp Thing and then also writing the Justice League dark backup feature that'll be in Justice League. Uh, but no, it was a yeah, definitely the most Dan Waters book uh, for the time being that we'll have on our show. Though, like, it, it's not all one episode, but it'll all be you, you know, you get it. All right, X Men Corner for Marauders. 
Marauders, number 17, Jerry Duggan, Matteo Lolly, Edgar Delgado on colors. And then Emma Frost is taking Shaw to the, the tower she made for Magneto and the, I can't even remember, the one the one prestige miniseries that, uh, I think it was, what, Giant Size X-Men that she made. So she's using it for, I guess, for safekeeping to put Shaw in. I wasn't really clear on why she's using that, because uh, Magneto knows where it is. Um, I guess she's doing it a favor to to Emma for making it for him. Um, but she's prepping for the a state dinner in which Kate's going to invite the that child version of the Hellfire Club, which is now the Verandi organization. Uh, so Kate kind of goes in there and spoils their party with an invitation, so they have to show up. Uh, then most of this issue just uh, you know focuses on Callista, who wants her powers back and must go through the Crucible, and asks Storm to kill her and obliges as uh, she kind of comes down in the moment and they fight um, and she doesn't use blades to respect her. She just uses like shocks her heart and kills her that way. So she can get her powers back. And also she comes back with the eye patch. So that was still cool to see. Um, at the same time though, like I feel like I missed two to three issues, but I know I didn't. So that's weird. Like it's just, it, it, there's something about pacing of this issue that just felt totally off here. And then also off was uh, Mateo Lolli's art here, which just caught progressively worse throughout the issue, I felt. And near the end, we have some real flat, almost, you know, resembling sketches for the faces. They don't look finished. Um, but I, I don't want to ever, you know, I don't know what was up with that or that was, you know, a design choice. But definitely does not look like, you know, the 16 other issues or so minus five of what Mateo Lolli's done in the book. So that was that was something to see, but and then also talk again of Wanda uh, Scarlet Witch being a pretender, which was like okay, all right, I guess can she just be a mutant again? That would be much more preferred. Yeah, uh, going off the immediate last thing you said, I agree. They, you know, I find it intriguing every time they kind of reference Scarlet Witch because that's something that the you know the hickman books have kind of danced around and this whole like pretender nickname but i also kind of hate that status quo and wish they would kind of move towards doing something about that uh i think this is a down issue on the art front um but i really enjoyed this overall it taps into a whole swath of x-men lore while kind of touching on different developments for all these characters obviously the cover teases the classic storm and callisto fight there's references to a lot of deep cuts like Harry Leland and the Fenris twins. Um, and uh, it was fine. This kind of feels like a, it's definitely an in-between issue kind of. Um, finally dealing with some of the subplots. And uh, it was enjoyable. Now, this next issue is Sword Number 2 by Al Ewing, Valerio Shidi. This is the, this second issue of the ongoing series is a tie-in to a line-wide crossover event, uh, speaking of King of Black. So, damn it. Um, and that's on top of when I already wasn't sure exactly why this book needed to exist. You know, let alone since then, Marvel has announced like three more X-Books. They probably announced one as I'm speaking right now. So... In this issue, we get to see Metallo taking a shit and reading a magazine about tanks. Pybok is still standing around as like the Kree Scroll uh, Empire ambassador, so he's helping them out. And suddenly, Random is here, who I don't recall from a previous issue, but Random is a silly, stupid 
kind of funny, entertaining, deep cut. Then Fabian Cortez helps out on Krakoa as they're kind of trying to figure out how to deal with this King of Black stuff. And Mentalo's mission, it turns out, is to provide an escape route for the five, you know, the uh, people involved with the, the crew involved with the resurrection protocols. And he does so with his think tank, which is just like a giant tank. And then the final page tease is Cable shows up because I guess he went missing between the issues. It's like alluded to at the very beginning of this, but there's no explanation. I don't know if that's in another book. Is that in, in, in an issue of King of Black? I don't remember if uh, there was one. I think there was one that came out between weeks and I hadn't caught up to it yet. Um, but Cable is possessed by a null symbiote. Um, I might drop this book because like the first issue kind of set up a concept for the book. But then the second one, it really feels like a disposable tie into a crossover. I mean, they're fighting these stupid symbiote dragons. And uh, I don't care. I mean, it's cool seeing Sunfire a little bit. Um, but also that goes into the whole thing, like the the complicated dynamics of living on Krakoa and, you know, mutants, what their allegiance is to. Because the whole thing with Sunfire is he didn't stick around with the X-Men because he was, well, number one, because he's a jerk and didn't get along with anyone. But also like Sunfire is like really big into being Japanese and repping his country and things like that. So like, I, I I would like to see more of Sunfire and see kind of his dynamic, similar to what I've seen in some kind of minor stories with Danny Moonstar, where it's like, you know, is Sunfire chilling out in Japan too? Does he does he have dual residence? Um, I'd like to see that, but this book is not giving me that. And I think I might drop it. All right. Well, Dan, Lionel book, retro. All right. Well, one book we're not going to drop because it is our retro issue. So, yeah. <laughs> um, anyways, our retro issue this week is Marvel Premiere uh, number 47 from April 1979. Uh, this is written by David Michelini, art by John Byrne, with inks by Bob Layton. Um, fun fact, I believe John Byrne and Bob Layton don't really like each other, and I think John Byrne called Bob Layton's art like trash at one point so wow what a shocker right artists not liking each other's work anyways um this issue also features the first appearance of scott lang in the ant-man costume not the actual character that was back in like an avengers issue i can't remember which one that was um which is actually why i why mostly i chose this issue because uh, i know this is like his debut as ant-man and i don't really have any collections of this issue hopefully i can find it in a been at some point i doubt it it's probably pretty expensive maybe but anyways um as scott dresses ant-man uh, fights several cross security guards he thinks about how he got into his predicament so we kind of open up with that uh recently paroled after serving time for burglary uh, he reveled in both his new job at stark international which kind of lines up with his appearances in the iron man run also by david michelini and uh bob layton and once again, being a father to his son, or his son, his daughter, Cassie, uh, who I guess is a Spider-Man fan. Uh, unfortunately, she developed a rare heart ailment, draining Scott's financial financial resources and making him contemplate a return to crime. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Good, because it kind of does sound familiar. Uh, he learns of Erica Sondheim's experimental approach to heart surgery. 
Uh, seeking her out, he sees her being abducted by several men, including an unseen figure with a rather oversized hand, uh, tracing them to cross technical enterprises, otherwise known as CTE. Oof, bad uh, acronym there. Uh, he despairs of being able to break into such a secure complex. In a quest to get some quick money, he burglarizes by coincidence the home of Henry Hank Pym. Oh my God, guys! Finding instead, um, finding instead of cash and jewels, Pym's old Ant-Man costume. So inspired to try it out, Scott quickly masters the shrinking technology and the cybernetic helmet, enabling him to talk to ants. So breaking back into Cross Technical Enterprises (CTE). He finds Dr. Sondheim finishing a surgical operation. Back in the present, the fledging hero has dispatched the last of his foes when he is confronted with the giant form of Darren Cross. So not Yellow Jacket, but still the same exact character. Um, you know, obviously reading, going through the summary, you know, writing it down, reading the issue. Um, it's really interesting to see how many similarities are pulled from this and the first ant-man movie so i thought that was interesting but yeah i mean oh this was i i really like this this is probably one of my favorite retro issues that we read so far um i'm a huge fan character of ant-man so kind of seeing the origin of scott lang's character i think is really interesting you know i've seen him sprinkling a little bit in mickley and layton's run on iron man which is always nice to see but this is really cool to kind of see how his, his start is. Um, what do you guys think? Also, great art by John Byrne. Can't discount that enough. Uh, Vince, do you want to go first since you have more things written? Yeah, sure. So the second issue of this, uh, the, you know, there's one more issue of this in Marvel, in Marvel Premiere number 48. This is one of the first comics I ever owned. Uh, and for a long time, was probably the, one of the oldest single issues I owned. It is worth noting this is Scott's second appearance after he has a quick cameo in Avengers. And then his appearances, more appearances in Avengers and in Iron Man are kind of after this. And then he has a good run, you know, through though through those books, through scattered issues of like Marvel Team Up 2 and 1, stuff like that. But I can't help but think, you know, if he got an actual ongoing back then, because that's kind of the idea of what Marvel Premiere is. It's that kind of like showcase thing. I mean, theoretically, it's also for characters that, you know, definitely are not getting ongoing, but they just wanted to vote a full issue to. And maybe that's how they saw it. But like, I have to imagine, you know, I, I didn't check the letters pages, you know, for like five issues from now or whatever. But I got to imagine people, you know, reacted very positively to these. So it's almost surprising that they didn't try another take on Ant-Man in like the early 80s with Scott um you know a, a solo effort like for example like again this isn't actually a gauge of the popularity or success of the character but like earlier in marvel premiere 3d man had three issues and scott lang only gets two it doesn't mean anything but still um i'm also curious about the art like you know i always knew that burn was attached to this but like if you technically go through like you know look at certain websites the credits are you know this is a classic you know, Byrne does breakdowns for these, but Layton does finishes. Um, and that's similar to certain eras of like Michelinie's Iron Man, where Layton was doing finishes as opposed to certain chunks he's doing more traditional inks. 
things like that. So I'm kind of curious as well if Byrne had actually done full pencils for this, you know, if it would have looked significantly sharper or better. And, you know, maybe that would have been the difference to lead to a more substantial run of Ant-Man. Who knows? But I really like this stuff. I always thought Darren Cross was like a really weird character because he's like, he, he he looks like Pink Hulk or something like that. It's it's really weird, and I kind of understand, you know, what they did for the mo- for the movie. Even though I don't really like that they just slapped him in the yellow jacket costume. What was that? It, it sounded like you were in the middle of a sentence. No, no, that's that's what I said. <laughs> like I was waiting for you to finish. Uh, it, it's I mean, you bring up the movie. A lot of this follows the beats of the movie, and that's my you know my one big, um more familiarity with Scott Lang would be the movie much less than the the comics. But uh, like, it was kind of weird how much, how the same beats are there. It was like, Oh, he steals the suit, finds it in Pim's house. And then he, and then Darren Cross is, Oh, oh, okay. That's there. Like it all kind of follows the same beats all in this one issue. So that's kind of crazy to me. They got that much of the movie out of, you know, just Marvel premiere number 47. Obviously, they stretch it out to 27, you know, two hours. But I, I do like how it's like the same kind of beats. But, uh, you know, this is John Byrne and Michelinie on the art. Well, no, it's not uh, John Byrne and uh, Bob Layton on art. So that's fun. And then this is Michelinie. I, I like Michelinie kind of here. His Spider-Man is hit and miss with Todd for me. But for the most part, I like it. But no, this was this is good. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I was bemoaning is that there's basically there was no solo Scott Lang except for these two issues of Marvel premieres. So, like, that's all they had to pull for the movie. You know, that, you know, they may have pulled certain elements from like his guest, you know, his supporting character roles in like a dozen issues of Iron Man and stuff like that. Um, but like, this is all they had, which is, is still odd. I mean, the like the first Ant Man ongoing series is uh well i guess it's technically irredeemable ant-man but scott lang's first genuine series genuine series is nick spencer which i believe was basically timed with that movie right before it or whatever kind of weird kind of weird but definitely fun and then obviously you know scott gets the more comedic you know persona from paul rudd which then you know that's a thing that's bled through into more current books like we we did read the the Dylan Burnett and Zeb Wells series last year, and we liked that uh, book, but that's definitely more on the comedic side uh, for that though. But gentlemen, picks of the week. Do you have picks? Uh, I would say you can throw your consideration to your future state books here, even though we didn't talk about it them on this segment. We'll talk about them on the next segment. But uh, what are your picks, guys? Ha ha. Yeah, ha ha for me. Yep, same. So, all right, so we're across, not even pulling in anything future state to, to come in and surprise take it. No, it's all ha-ha all the way. That's it for this week. We'll, we'll do future state reviews right after. Hey, hey, it's future state week two, and we have how many more weeks of this? It's, I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll say this at the beginning. I can't believe DC was actually about to go with this as their new continuity before DDO got fired. Cause Oh boy, would that have been terrible? Like most of these books I like, but permanent. Oh, well, Oh God, this would have been a disaster. I'm Mike. And I'm Daniel. I'm Vincent. 
So we read uh, we read six books out of seven this week. Uh, we still have not read, you know, perfect for the cycle yet. Uh, I do find that interesting. We've left one off the docket uh, for the first two weeks now. But we do pick up a book as we only had five last week, but we add one more for this week. Um, and as expected, I would say they heavily lean Batman centric because I, I'd say three or four of these are Batman centric, which I'm beginning to think that this is a problem. Uh, and also, Vince, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, correct, you were correct last week where all of these books seem to be in a completely different timeline where I thought the Batman ones were at least, you know, in the same sphere. I can't even say that anymore with the way things are going on those. And then also Justice League is taking place at a complete other end of the timeline here as well. So that's which makes things more confusing. But mentioning Batman, uh, Dan, you're going to talk about Future State Dark Detective number one. Yes. So our first Future State issue is Future State Dark Detective number one, written by Mariko Tamaki, art by Dan Mora, with colors by Jordi Belair. Our story opens to a very grim Gotham that has been taken over by the Magistrate and is led by this robot android person called Peacekeeper-01. And uh, Batman um, is also dead in this universe, I guess. So... We see Bruce Wayne, I guess, um, laying low in a restaurant. And I'm assuming a flashback to him nearly escaping death and being sewn up after a really bad battle in like this like back alley with this like surgeon. We then see Bruce walking through a high tech like version of Gotham when he decides to step in and stop a mugging. Uh, the mugging is stopped, but the magistrate, which um, then starts to hunt down Bruce and like starts going after him after they you know, break up the skirmish. Uh, uh, what was I saying? Sorry, give one second. Uh, we then uh, see some great action scenes of him running away from the Peacekeeper. Uh, some really good colors going on here. Like, you know, we have like the really dark, grim background, backdrop of Gotham. And then there's like one panel where he's kind of walking through and we see like all the very bright screens of like, you know, the different like areas of Gotham. So I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, the end of the issue kind of, Ends with uh, Bruce Wayne running away from Peacekeeper, as I said, and he's kind of like, you know, I'm back from the grave. Bruce Wayne's or Batman's not dead anymore. I'm ready to fight. And that's kind of where our issue ends. So I really like the art here by Dan Mora. I thought it was pretty good. You know, very thin, like pencil work at times, but I thought it was like really nice. Um, like I said, it really helps paint the atmosphere of what this like story is kind of representing. But, uh, yeah, I thought this was somewhat decent. We'll see how it turns out. Yeah, this this will, by the way, Dan, this will be the same team that takes over Detective Comics when we enter March for Infinite Frontier. Obviously, Dan Mora is a fan favorite uh, from his work on Power Rangers and the, the brief stint on Buffy the Vampire Slayer when that started. That's kind of where he's made his name. Um, and, you know, he's done some, some brief Batman pieces here and there. Uh, I think he did so on social media. Media, he's done like Batman sketches, uh, which definitely made people clamor for. Oh, I want to see Dan Mora draw Batman, and I, I also want to see Dan Mora draw Batman. But like, I want to see him draw Batman, not like Future State, 
like broke Bruce Wayne Batman. I'm also going to get into a gripe here where a lot of the future state designs seem to be like add armor, take away cape. Because we've seen that with John, we've seen that with Robin here and Robin Eternal and with Bruce's costume here. It's like, go with tactical armor plating, remove the cape. I don't, like, that's not a hugely great design choice to me. But then also for John, in, you know what, Superman and Metropolis, he doesn't have a cape, but now in Justice League and then Superman Wonder Woman, he's rocking a cape. So, like, at some point he goes, I don't want to wear a cape anymore. I don't fully get it. Uh, but Dan Wars art here, here is good. Verica Tamaki, I don't think gets enough to do here. Um, like just as it was starting to get interesting, it ended. Um, and then I liked the Grifter uh, backup story by Matthew Rosenberg. Um, but I, like I said, but like I, 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 I'm more, but out of that, I'm more curious what you thought of Grifter because you've never read Wildcats than I did about seeing a grifter story where he teams up with Luke Fox. So, well, uh, yeah, I'll quickly comment on Batman and then, I'll, and then I guess Dan can get back to grifter. I don't have much to say on grifter. Uh, I don't really care about fake cold cash in the DC universe, but Batman, I think more is an interesting pick on Batman. The art is definitely the uh, standout here. I feel like his style in, in some ways is close to Greg Capullo. Uh, that's kind of some of the vibes I get. And in fact, the the costume that you're just seeing, which I agree, I think it looks stupid as hell. It, it kind of has that uh, zero year vibe. Um, it's, it's pretty similar to some of the stuff that Batman was wearing, you know, in that story. But it's, it's like, it's like Capullo mixed with like Dan Panosian or something like that. I'm not sure how to describe it. Yeah. Uh, and and again, like you were talking about at the beginning of the show, I really don't understand the chronology of these future state books. I mean, I have a pretty good grasp now that different, you know, we have different like little connected titles. Like uh, I'm going to reference some of that later, like another new pocket that we've discovered. But in this one specifically, reference is made to Mayor, Nak- Mayor Nakano, who is from the runs like the current slash just on one of them just finished runs by Tynan and Tomasi in the current day continuity. So like this can't, I mean, obviously Bruce is still alive, so whatever, but like how long is this mayor's run? You know, did Gotham suddenly become cyberpunk in like, even if like this mayor is like, first of all, he's not technically mayor yet in the main continuity. So maybe he's, you know, He's running like almost a full year and then maybe the term limits, maybe he's in office for like a max of like 10 years. Is that enough time for Gotham to suddenly become like, you know, cyberpunk future Tokyo-esque with giant billboards and holograms? It seems like a little bit of a jump and I don't understand how far in the future this is, gonna, this is supposed to uh, take place. It doesn't really matter, but whatever. Yeah, it that's that's the part of it that well it it seems that like at least with the batman titles i can piece together some sort of chronology where like okay dick grayson went crazy and was locked in arkham and that when teen titans seems to be taking place after he stopped being crazy i guess or before he started getting put in arkham i don't get it um we, we the big thing is the magistrate took over gotham somehow and started hunting all the masks down 
So, all right. And then most people think Bruce is dead, and I'm guessing this is going to end with Bruce actually dying, or he's just operating in the background. But, Dan, get back, uh, Grifter, I'm sorry. No, it's, it's my fault. I forgot that this had a backup story. I mean, to be fair, I, until I remember, until our, we put in our notes, I forgot Grifter was even a backup feature in here, to be honest. Like, that's not on, like, that's just, it was forgettable. And he didn't even put his cool mask on until, like, the final three pages, so... Yeah, yeah. It, this is a pretty short summary, so I won't spend too much time on it. But uh, this you story, don't need <laughs> yeah, this story, Grifters, is written by Matthew Rosenberg with art by Carmine Carmen D. Wow, I'm gonna butcher this last name. Why do I go all the hard last names? Carmine D. Gian Domenico. Gian Domenico. Okay. Yes. Um, in the same Gotham that is ruled by this magistrate, we see Cole Cash getting into a bar fight before escaping and being captured by the magistrate. Um, on his way to be transported, he is in the car with Luke Fox, who is uh, Lucius Fox's um, son. Yeah, and... but not the one that's the next Batman. Okay, that makes sense. Um, after some punches and bickering back and forth, the two manage to work together to escape the transport van, I guess, and go to Cole's apartment where he gets his gun and his cool mask, as Mike alluded to, to find out who is after him. Um so yeah, I mean it's set in the same timeline as the Batman or Dark Detective storyline. Uh, interesting artwork, I guess. But, but here's the thing: we don't we don't know if it's set during the same time as Dark Detective. This could be after Bruce is already dead. Dead. We don't know. We we don't know anything. At the very least, we know the magistrate is still around. So that's all. Right. I my my only other theory could be that also I guess the peacekeeper one of them is Jason Todd. Since we're we're told what Jason was a traitor, so and then you know he's got the the red mask. So if I'm a betting man, I'm going to go ahead and say that's Jason Todd. I wouldn't be surprised if it is. So the you know I I feel like though for the sake of our own sanity, we'll get to Robin Eternal because I I don't have anything else to say on Dark Detective unless Vince anything else. No, okay, Robin Eternal number one. Which is uh, Future State, Robin and Turtle. This is Megan Fitzmartin, Eddie Barrows on art, and then Ibar Ferreira on inks. So, like, Tim Drake is now the lone member of the Bat family left to fight the Magistrate after Bruce's death. We get definitely told Bruce is dead here, but I, I don't know if he is really dead or not. I don't know. Uh, so, we do get lines of references to the others, other states that, you know, like I said, Bruce is dead, Dixon Arkham, Jason is a traitor, and Damien is MIA. But my theory is when we get to Teen Titans that I think Damien is uh, uh, Red Red X. That would make the most sense. So just Tim Drake is left to to fight these cyber psychos or cyber guys that are hopped up on this Lazarus resin, which makes them more powerful. So they're siphoning off the, you know, the goop in the the Lazarus pits and using them to inject these people to make them more souped up super soldiers. All right, I can get with that. Uh, he gets bailed out and saved by spoiler Stephanie Brown. Uh, but, you know, he messes up their conversation. So he leaves her and walks to try to get from uh, help from Darcy, uh, who was from We Are Robin. That was like their tech hacker person. And then like, just so they're not detected by the magistrate, they're talking in sign language, which I thought that was a neat idea. Um, like, and then most of this is them like talking in sign language, but you're just reading caption boxes. So uh, maybe could have been done slightly better. Um, but basically, Tim's got to get on this giant freighter 
uh, of the magistrate to destroy it because that's where all the Lazarus resin is. So they fly up there. They do get last minute help from Stephanie Brown. And then, you know, they fight all the bad guys. Tim comes face to face with the big souped up one uh, with the whole, oh, no, I was too late. And then he gets his neck snapped. But like while doing so, he gets thrown and like the tubes of Lazarus uh, resin break. And then he gets, you know, scooped up by all of it. So, oh, he's completely fine and gets revived. So time for round two. Overall, eh, meh, like it was fine, I guess. Eddie Barrow's art with Robin, which is cool, but you know, same standard, more tactical armor suit with no with no cape. Um, nice to see Tim in the spotlight, but overall, this was like I said, straight fine. Six out of ten would be if we were if we rate things six out of ten. You know, we go for ratings. What do you guys think of Robin Eternal? Read it. Yeah, I know you didn't read it. Looks like uh, Robin got slimed at the end. Yeah, it's all green. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I, the art kind of grew on me as the issue went on. It looked a little shaky in the beginning, I thought, but uh, I kind of, I don't know. I, I haven't seen a lot of this this guy's work, I don't think. He's been um, around for a long time. Has he? Okay, well, then yes. I'm going to show you how much DC stuff I don't read. Um, no, I thought it was it, it, pretty good pacing. I, I, I enjoyed it. For what it's worth. Yeah, that's that's the thing. For what it's worth, yeah, it was fine. <laughs> I do like the, the little shot with the, the line up in the jetpack. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that was kind of neat. All right. Future State Teen Titans. Future State Teen Titans by Tim Sheridan and Rafa Sandoval. This writer, Tim Sheridan, as far as I know, has zero comics credits. He's coming from animation TV, though he wrote the last Superman animated movie, which I heard was all right. So let's see. Um, so Nightwing here, he's wearing a weird suit. Um, it also kind of has that armor vibe, but visually it's a little close to his the uh, suit that he wore in his 90s miniseries, I guess. And he's hanging out with Red Arrow and Miko Queen. They're visiting the wreckage of Titan's Tower. There are graves here for Wally, Donna, also Wallace, and then some weird deep cuts. Like one of these graves is for a character that just appeared in their Endless Winter special. So I I guess, you know, when it's not Future State, maybe that character's going to keep showing up. Who knows? In this future timeline, Cyborg and Beast Boy have merged as Cybeast. And they like are one body, but they both separately talk. It doesn't, whatever. Um Jakeem Thunders hanging out with them, you know, traditionally more of a connected to the JSA um, in the Jeff Johns era. But then things get even weirder as we're introduced to other Teen Titans of the Future State era. We have Brat Girl, Gorilla Greg, and I don't even know who Gorilla Greg is because we don't get like proper like introductions with like their names next to them or anything like that. So I don't see a gorilla here. So I don't know if, you know, someone turns into a gorilla similar to Kong Gorilla or, you know, Congo Bill or whatever. There's a character literally called Totally Tubular. And then there's Chupacabra. And we were talking about, you know, just trying to figure out in our heads how Future State works, you know, which different timelines and, and universes are each. It turns out that this Teen Titans book is connected to both the Flash book and the Shazam book, I believe. And suddenly, at the end of the issue, Dick puts on a Deathstroke mask, and there's also Red X, 
from the TV show. It's there's no explanation. Um, I don't know. We're skipping Flash. Probably skipping Shazam. We may have. I don't know. Maybe that was this week, and we already did skip it. But this didn't really grab me at all, and I'm pretty sure I'm dropping it uh, during future state at least. I I enjoyed this. Uh, I'll stick around just to see who Red X is. My my guess is Damien. Uh, no real explanation for how they you know integrate the Red X stuff. I imagine they're just going to do what they did for Phantasm and be like, "How you remember it happened happened?" Because obviously in the show it was uh, Dick posing as Red X. Uh, of course, you didn't have television as a kid, so I don't even know if you knew that. So well, yeah, I mean I knew that, but I don't. Again, I didn't have television as a kid, so I didn't grow up watching that show or anything like that. And I kind of like have like a ton of stupid nitpicks about the show, you know, with Slade and and things like that. So like, that's I don't ha- I don't have a strong attachment. nor the place to complain about that now. But yeah, yeah, I don't have a strong attachment to that show. I mean, yeah, but you know, people like me who did grow up with the cartoon, like, yeah, I'm I'll, I'll check it out because oh, all right, I'm intrigued by Red X. Well, even if the Red X reveal is here, like, this is a future state, so, and we know some version of Red X is in the regular book, so, yeah. is it a different Red X? I don't know how that works. It would have to be. I, I like the idea of going with uh, Dick's, like, second costume. I don't know why he's wearing a Deathstroke mask, so, it's really the unanswered questions that are going to keep me coming back here. And by the way, Shazam is next week, so we'd not okay. miss that one yet, but we might not read it. Uh, we'll I do put the rundowns for next week. I mean, I do actually, I, I kind of like the aesthetic of, and especially with this weird ass costume that he's wearing now, like the Deathstroke mask kind of fits visually at the, at, in that yeah. final page. I do, I do kind of like the idea of uh, Dick, you know, working for Deathstroke, whether it's, you know, a, a, an uneasy alliance or whatever. He's done it before. Like there's a, there's a moment in the, uh, Devin Grayson run in like the 2000s yeah. where Dick's kind of hanging out with Deathstroke. Um, and there's well, been that, I'll, like I'll that. bring it up again. That's what he was doing when he was Red X in the cartoon. So like, yeah, that they go hand in hand together. Yeah. All right. Bring Dan back for Justice League. Yeah, we're throwing backstage. I feel like I just got like the little like cane rubbed around my neck and yanked off the stage. Anyways. You didn't read the book. What? You didn't read Teen Titans. Okay, well, you didn't have to throw me backstage. You could have just taken me off the little thing here. Rude. That's what we always do. It's never different. <laughs> okay. I like that. I like how it's just like your voice chiming in. <laughs> Anyways, um, our next issue is Future State Justice League number one, written by Joshua Williamson, art by R- Robson Ro- Roca. Can I'm sorry, I can't talk tonight. And inks by Daniel Enriquez. Um, I probably butcher that too. Uh, in the future, obviously, we see a Justice League run by a bunch of legacy characters. That's basically what we want to call them, as they reminisce about past battles won. Uh, we then pan to the Legion of Doom, who is led by T.O. Morrow, who despises the new Justice League and swears to kill them. Uh, the next day, the Justice the Justice League shows up to see the Legion of Doom, um, and apparently they're dead. Uh, back at the Hall of Justice, Superman observes the damage left behind. We get a good conversation between the new Wonder Woman, whose name escapes me right now, and Superman on their predecessors and what their legacy means for them. Um, 
I think there's like one line where like uh, I forget what it was like like the Wonder Woman told Superman it's like you gotta be the man of tomorrow or the man of today or like the future I, I forget what it was there's like some it was, like, it was yeah. uh, he's gotta be the man of today because his dad was the man of tomorrow oh, okay there you go yeah so that makes sense uh, later we see Superman and Wonder Woman kidnapping and trapping the other Justice League members to which we eventually find out that the Hyper Clan has assumed the appearances of the Justice League and will now infiltrate the world. Er, my gird. Can't wait to see what happens next. Um, <laughs> the backup story here is Justice League Dark, um, written by Ram V, which is such a, I guess that's his name, uh, with art by Marcio Takara. Uh, I'll be honest, I really just skimmed this story. Uh, we have this woman and a chimp character. I forget what his name is. I did I did see him in a previous um, issue that we read. Uh, they're teaming up, and the big reveal at the end is that Dr. Fate is this old philosoph- philosophical man that was in the story. He got, like, transformed into Dr. Fate, just by what I looked at. Um, yeah. I don't know. Uh, this this is I, I just, it's something about this I did not like. Obviously, I can't really comment too much on the backup story because I skimmed it, but um, I didn't really like this issue. Uh, well, first off, uh, I'll disagree. I actually liked Justice League Dark a lot. Uh, uh, I'll read it next time. <laughs> well, I mean, you'll I, I, I would bet very good money that you would not know who a single person on the page who was for Justice League Dark. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know a lot of characters, so he should know Zatanna because she's pretty sexy. What? Yeah, I mean, I would, well, he also should know Detective Chimp since Detective Chip, Chimp showed up in uh, uh, yeah, in Endless Winter. That's his name. And you yeah. should also know who John Constantine is because he shows up at the end of it. Okay, fair enough. But yeah, them going to hunt down uh, magic with uh, Etrigan being trapped in Detective Chimp—that was a cool and fun idea. Uh, the this new Future State Justice League that uh, doesn't want to have interpersonal relationships with each other outside the team because they died because some of them... Want, what, what was it? Someone on the team killed them uh, because of, they knew who they all were, so they're all like, we, we only come together when we're needed and then we only do our own thing is kind of a different take. Uh, my favorite of the, the legacy characters would probably be Aquaman. Uh, that's... I can't remember uh, what her actual actual uh, name is Vince what was it's Andy right yeah Andy yeah it was cool seeing her and then obviously she's more prominent here because I think uh in the future state Aquaman she's still like a she's she's the aqua lad to Jackson Hyde's Aquaman so that's a done once again another different timeline and also uh next Batman uh Jace Fox has a different suit here um as well it's it you know just small things you pick up uh, from paying attention to these future state books. But uh, Joshua Williamson he pulled out the Hyper Clan in a very cool and fun, interesting twist that I thought worked. Uh, Dan, I don't know if you read the first arc of Morrison and Porter's JLA, but he that's where he used the Hyper Clan. Uh, they were the White Martians that uh, take over and invade. Wow! But, spoil it for me, thank you. Well, it's a twenty-five-year-old story. It doesn't. I mean, I I thought you know no one else has really used the Hyper Clan since then, so that's why 
I thought it was, you know, oh, okay, you're digging into Justice League history to pull that out. So for the most part, I, I actually, this was my favorite of the week because I thought the main feature and the backups were both pretty strong. And then uh, at least, you know, Ram V, once again, like I said, he's he's taken on Justice League Dark with the backups to Bendis' Justice League when we get into Infinite Frontier. I don't know what Joshua Williamson's writing. They haven't announced it yet unless they have, and I completely missed it. But his, his handle on JLA wasn't terrible, but Bendis is getting it in Infinite Frontier, so I don't know what's happening with Williamson. Yeah, I thought this was enjoyable. Um, it's kind of it's kind of funny, like the whole like, oh, we have these new rules. You're not supposed to know each other's real names, and then it's like you see that there's little pockets of like these characters have close relationships, like Aquaman and Flash are hanging out, Superman and Wonder Woman are hanging out. Um, I thought all the characters, you know, they have, you know, interesting little interplay in in that sense. You know, the art's fine. Um, it was cool seeing the Hyperclan, and I'll get to, yeah, our next book. It, these Future State books, they're pulling, some of them are pulling from weird little pockets of continuity. And in fact, I'm going to talk about something else that pulls from Morrison's kind of Justice League era in a second. Um, but overall, I thought it was it was solid. Are you, you continuing? Are we all continuing on with Justice League, or just me and Vince? Yeah. All right. Um, I don't know. I'll think about it. That's a no. All right. In Future State, Superman, Wonder Woman. This is written by Dan Waters, who we, you know, I teased this uh, in a separate segment uh, this week. Art by Lila Del Duca. So this is initially paralleling the different lives of these two heroes. John Kent's costume is fucking awful, as alluded to earlier. And that is somewhat tied into the fact that the art in this issue is a little bit inconsistent at times. But then Yara Floor, the uh, future state Wonder Woman, is in Sao Paulo pushing on a corrupt politician about embezzlement and not investing in infrastructure. And later on, she talks about deforestation and fires in the Amazon. So it's 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 always nice to see capes doing these kinds of heroics. Um, just as Superman did in Action Comics number one, you know he he pressures and confronts politicians in that in that first appearance. Um, obviously, there's a it's a tricky line. You know, you can do it successfully. You can do it heavy-handed, different ways. I think it's handled well here. And, you know, in the one Roman issue that we read previously, which was my highlight previously, I thought they, you know, they've already established this character as intrinsically tied to her origins, her cultures and everything like that, as well as a little bit feisty, a little bit fiery. So totally buy it here. Then she catches up with the fellow Brazilian gods of the sun and moon. But Solaris, a literal supervillain son, originally from Grant Morrison's DC One Million from the late '90s, is fucking around in the sky near Earth. He wants to take on Superman. So now there are two suns in the sky, basically having a dick measuring contest. And as you can imagine, that causes all kinds of havoc across the Earth. But also is really tinkering with Superman's anatomy, especially since Solaris is a red sun. So John and Yara, they have an iffy relationship. Uh, she left the league. So I guess this may actually take place after Justice League. Um, or maybe 
Just League is after this when she rejoins. Who knows? Um, and at the end, John's powers get wacky. That's kind of the tease here. Uh, I like the writing from Waters, how he's presenting these two characters, their chemistry and some of the subject matter. The interaction between John and Solaris feels kind of in this, it feels kind of silver agey in a good way. John basically is like, hey, Solaris, you know, we're going to do this like little like challenge. And if I win, you got to go away. And if, and if you win, I don't know, you can fuck the earth. So it's almost like a good classic, like, story that you'd expect from Mitzi Pitlick, who also gets a quick reference here because John somehow, like, I mean, I guess it makes sense because Superman doesn't usually have a ton of interaction with gods and magic and things like that. And obviously magic is, you know, one of Superman's notable weaknesses and things. But I still think it's a little weird where John is like, he doesn't buy that Yara knows literal gods, even though you know, Mike and I argue about this sometimes, like, you know, gods and comic books in these shared universes, like the Asgardians and, and the, the Olympians in Marvel. It, it's, it's a, it's a weird scenario. It's a weird kind of territory, but I enjoyed this. Yeah. I think all of the characterization on, on both sides of the title, pretty good. I'm going to continue with this. Yeah. I, I really like this as well. Um, I don't know if it's just like this artist, but for some reason, like the, I just, there's something about that costume I just don't really like from John. I mean, it's just. For, okay. I was yeah, going to, I was going to ask for if it was for Superman or Wonder Woman, but you, you answered. No, that. no, Wonder Woman is, is nice. I, I like it because like it's unique, but it's still like faithful to the character a little bit. But something about like the shoulder pads and obviously the complete disregard for a, uh, you know, the, um, what do you call that? The, the Raj. Uh, I can't. The, the name escaping me. Um, what are you trying to think of? Because he has a cape in this one. Boxers. Box. I don't know. The red underwear. Yeah, like they're not there. Like it's just it's weird. They like, got like that belt. Yeah, the undies. Just, yeah, it's just weird. Um, and one thing I, I know this. Yeah, it's it is actually, a belt that's holding nothing up. Actually. Yeah, it, it's stupid. Um, another thing too. I know, like, I actually like the art for the most part in this issue, except for, like, the second to last page, there's one, like, close-up of Wonder Woman's face that's, like, really, really, like, poorly drawn. I don't know if you guys guess, like, it looks really weird. Like, her face, something about it is really off, but I, that just really stood out to me. Like, towards the end of the issue, I'm like, what is this? But, um, yeah, I'll get some, the, I'll read I... the second one. I, I personally didn't notice anything off. I actually thought one of my favorite pages of the week was uh, that the, the splash page of Wonder Woman uh, saving the helicopter. I thought that was really cool and inventive with the medium uh, watching her jump and save the helicopter. The way your eyes read it across the page, I thought was really interesting. Um, I, I also like the Dan Waters puts these personal touches on Superman in it where he like wakes up and uses his heat vision in the clouds to spell out to like you know, communicate with Metropolis, letting people know that he's out there looking out for them. I, that was an inventive idea that was, uh, I thought that was cool. And, um, you know, I, at least looking at to me is like, is he doing that? So he feels more like he's helping the people. Cause you know, he's not, you know, he's not his father. So he feels like he has to be more outgoing and more proactive than ever. Cause he's got to live up to his father's legacy. That was something that, 
maybe more introspective I was reading it as, but I did think it was a, a different test. And then also like Vince hinted on, I do like how he went up to, you know, the sun eater and was like, Hey, if we fight, you're going to lose. So like he actually tries to talk him down and then he p- presents the challenge. It was a different, you know, way of trying to combat the the villain that was, you know, sets him aside from his dad. So he's not just a carbon copy, which I like, but yeah, like I, I enjoyed this uh, for the most part, but at the same time, I, I felt like it was very, very plain at the at the same time which i thought was interesting where not i I don't know it was flat to me in the rating like it it wasn't super dynamic to me um if that's a way to describe it but well i did enjoy it i mean i'll I'll read the second one but uh our final one was green lantern number one and this is this had three features in it uh, Jeffrey Thorne and Tom Rainey on John John Stewart, and then Jessica Cruz was Ryan Katie and S- Sammy Basari, or I'm sorry, Sammy Basri, and then Guy Gardner was Ernie Altbacker, and then Clayton Henry. Clayton Henry did the cover for this issue. Uh, so Jeffrey Thorne, uh, like I said, writes the main th- feature here, which is John Stewart as a freedom fighter across the galaxy, and he's aligned with Salak and then Genort, uh, but he's much more like think Chewbacca, Ch- Chewbaccaized version of him. Uh, he's not like, you know, he's not the Genort from, you know, JLI. So that's a different take on him, definitely. So another, you know, they're now former Lanterns as the central power battery has been, uh, has died, were said, and they're trying to liberate this planet while these evil aliens are, you know, starting to attack from above while they're trying to save these refugees. And then they got to fight this guy named the Red God. I, there's not a lot of background of what's happening and why the power battery's dead. So... This is. I'm going to be critical. I think this is the one I'm most critical of because if it's called Green Lantern, there's no lanterns in the book. That and then not to not tell us what happened at all in the issue is a real big problem because now we're just and that's been a thing with a lot of these where we're just dropped in and expected to go with what we're told and hopefully we get pieces later. And this one I feel has the most where it's like, I need a detailed background of what exactly has happened. So why are these green lanterns not having their rings? But like we see the other core lantern cores are still out there. So, you know, to help the reader, at least like just put it like, normally I hate this, but like just a text box or something to tell us uh, what's going on. And then I feel bad for Jeffrey Thorne here. Cause I, I'll, I'll you know, it, it's hard to ignore it. He's been very outspoken on social media about how it, he hates how Jordan and John is in his, his eyes, the best Green Lantern. And then he doesn't really do any character work here with John. He's basically relegated to, you know, field leader calling out orders. Obviously, I do have to say I expect actual character work when Thorne takes over John as his starring Green Lantern in the new ongoing that'll happen in March. But nothing here in this first issue on any character work for John and then also not being able to use him as a lantern at all. I, I feel bad for Jeffrey Thorne here. Cause I feel like he gets a raw deal. Uh, the Tom Rainey art is okay. It reminds me of Howard Porter in some different ways. Uh, the Jessica true story. Uh, she's the last remaining lantern on this lantern substation as he, she fends off Lisa Drax and two other members of the Sinestro Corps uh, from stealing a lantern artifacts. Uh, some strong alien slash diehard vibes here as she's without a ring. So she has to rely on, you know, her wits and other weapons in the substation. And then she manages to beat Lissa Drax and is then chosen to become a Sinestro Corps member, which is interesting because she's the, her, her kind of main character trait is, you know, overcoming great 
personal fear of, you know, anxiety and PTSD. So I'm taking it as like she causes so much fear within herself that she can instill it in others with a with a yellow ring. That's an interesting take that I wish we would actually get more than just, you know, a side, you know, a backup story for. That's an interesting idea to explore. And the Guy Gardner one, guys on this planet tasked with ending like this endless war between these two factions on this planet when suddenly his ring goes out. I'm presuming from that's the moment the power battery died. So he has to spend the next 25 years becoming like their prophet and leader, eventually ending the war. And he builds a new warriors bar and, you know, he saves the planet. And then he's greeted by Lobo and he's like, I heard you built new warriors. Uh, that was fun. And that was probably my favorite of the three stories we got here. I feel bad because Jeffrey Thorne I, has, I felt like definitely has the least interesting stories of the three here, but any thoughts on Green Lantern, gentlemen? Very minimal. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I read the main story and it's like, oh, there's literally no one in a Green Lantern costume or using a traditional Green Lantern ring except for one inset panel of... Uh, fuck, now I'm blanking on his name. Who's the... Uh, Kill dying. Yeah. Yeah, there's one inset panel of Kilowog. That's the only character in this entire story in a Green Lantern costume. Which, like, I mean, I get it. Like, you know, if this was an ongoing Green Lantern series, it's okay if you have one issue where, you know, there's not Green Lantern as a costume or it's like some little arc where he loses the ring and things like that. But for the first issue, even if this is like this alternate future, separate continuities, loose prelude, I would not have started out this way. No, no. And I, th- and I like, uh, not really. I mean, it's cool seeing Guy, but like, I don't know these creators. Well, I don't know the writers, I should say, and I don't really care. Um, the, the other thing I'll say is, I mean, Tom Rainey, obviously, you know, very long career. And I, I, yeah. I think he has classics in his, in his resume, but I thought his art looked really weird on the main story. And it almost looks like, especially with the the points I already made with, without the costume and the ring, this first story, it, like if you were just flipping through it, honestly, it looks like maybe it could be like, like a fucking like judge did dread spinoff or something like that. Like it looks like, yeah. it looks like something that you would see in 2080 or like some kind of like, some kind of like, you know, more obscure sci-fi comic or something. Yeah. For me, it was like early two thousands, like, wannabe predator knockoff almost like or like set sci-fi thing like i get like a stargate uh vibe like an sg1 vibe to it or something like yeah it did not feel green lantern but you know it was in space uh dan any thoughts on green lantern yeah i mean this was pretty meh all through i mean i really was not a fan of the first stories art honestly i really did not lie with that at all um i don't know what it was and uh i don't know i thought the premise of the second one was interesting i, I like the splash page at the end you know kind of like what you said you know setting her up to be one of the sinestro core but yeah i don't know if i'm really gonna come back to the second issue of this i think it's it's a no for me dog yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm leaning as well. So if we had to pick one to recommend for week two, but it, like I, I, you know, I said at the beginning of the show, this was, you know, before Dan Didio was canned, 
so the five this was the 5g initiative you know they already paid for the work so this is why we're having future state you know they paid for the work just put it out there but this was going to be the new dc universe like this was going to be what it was and oh man i'm so happy they didn't go with this because regardless i mean there's been ones we've been positive on but i don't think we've been like shining colors positive on any of them throughout the first two weeks yeah. even on the ones we liked i mean more or less there's a couple that i would say are nine out of tens i i wouldn't say there's anything so far for me that's nine out of ten Mostly just one room, and I think so. Yeah, I maybe that like, and that's the one I enjoyed probably the most. But yeah, uh, to recommend for week two, I'd go Justice League. We didn't read uh, the super the the Kara Kara Zor-El Superwoman thing. We didn't well, Superwoman of the the Galaxy or whatever it was. Um, yeah, we didn't read that one. We read everything else. I'd go with Justice League as my as my pick to read this week. That was the one I had the most fun with. Um, any of you guys want to toss out if you had to read one, which which would you pick from this week? Yeah, from this week. Um, I think Superman Wonder Woman. Superman Wonder Woman. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. I thought it it edged out Dark Detective. Okay, I like it better. Yeah. All right. Well, that's two weeks in. That's how we're feeling about it. So until next time, that's that's it. For Future State Week Two.